Episode 124 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. My name is Chad Mayer. I'm a staff attorney with the AOPA Legal Services Plan. I'm also a commercial pilot and ground instructor and very pleased to be here today, Justin. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to episode 124 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Today's episode is the third installment of our deeper dive into AOPA, figure out what each department of AOPA does. And today we are talking with Chad Mayer. Chad Mayer is a part of their legal services team, and we find out everything and anything that the legal services team does. We find out what they deal with most, how they deal with it, how to reach out, when to reach out, and just what the whole legal services team can provide. It's a lot of great information. And especially if you have your AOPA membership, you can learn more about what that membership entails. So if you enjoy this episode, check out more information on AOPA's website and you can go to www.aopa.org. Aviation, as always though, if you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. I think we're up at like 542, looking to get that number up. So go leave a review if you haven't left one already. This helps more people find the episode and it recommends it on iTunes and on Spotify. So go ahead and leave a review if you can. Please follow us on social media at Pilot the Pilot on all social media platforms. If you ever want to reach out to me, email me pilotthepilothq at gmo.com. And if you'd love to support the website and the podcast, we have Buy Me a Coffee, we have Patreon, and you can also buy some pretty dope hats. All we have left are the all black hats. I'm looking to order more probably soon. I might do another pre-order here soon as well. So if you have any interest in getting a hat, DM me on, on Instagram or you can go and email me. Aviation, I don't want to take up any more of your time, so I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Without any further ado, here's episode Episode 124 with Chad Mayer. Chad, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you, Justin. It's Like I said, it's great to be here. I've got a, a hot cup of coffee, which is good because it's very gloomy outside my window. Um, so it's a good opportunity to catch up with you, talk about you know what I do with uh, AOPA and answer any questions you might have. Yeah, perfect. I'm excited for this. Uh, uh, PPS, has, uh, Pilot Protection Services, has been sponsoring some of my episodes for a while now. So I've always been been talking to Kevin, Kevin Cortez, who had my contact with AOPA, and I've just been wanting to get more information about it. You know, I want to I want to tell everyone about what these what some of the offerings that you have and what you can do. So I'm excited to have you on and share your story. I wish I had coffee. I'm already like two coffees in. I woke up early today trying to prepare and get ready. So I should probably cut myself off or else I'll be staying up till like 2 a.m. <laughs> it's early in the day yet. I think you could do another cup right? of coffee yeah, before right. lunch. But uh, <laughs> We'll take a break. We'll let them all yep. listen to this. And I'll go get, make some more coffee. I'll be right back. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so yeah, like I said, I'm really excited to have you on. I'm excited to share your story. I want to talk a little bit about you and uh, how you ended up at AOPA because I'm sure uh, going to law school and doing all that, I'm sure AOPA might not have been on the, the, the kind of like the top of your head. Like I really want to work for them, you know, but I'm sure there was a lot of uh, events that led to you getting by, hired by AOPA and flying and all that. So it should be a really interesting conversation. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, for, for starters, I, I went to law school and became a lawyer first before I fell in love with flying, uh, and, and certainly before I moved into, uh, you know, AOPA as a member and, uh, and then later as an employee. Um, when I went to law school, uh, I was thinking that I wanted to focus on, uh, something more along the lines of intellectual property, constitutional law, or something involving technology, because I've always been, uh, a techie, you know, always built my own computers dating back to high school and things of that nature. Um, so 
one of the one of the summers in law school, uh, the summer job that I got was uh, working for a software developer that actually made software uh, for law offices. I ended up signing on with them after law school, and I was in house with them for several years. Um, as it happens, um, my wife's uh, family, her her aunt and uncle, they've got uh, a small general aviation airplane. Her cousin uh, took me flying one day, and I I started thinking about it. I thought, hey, if he can do it. I can do it. Um, my wife and I were engaged to be married at the time, so there wasn't uh, any money, bandwidth, or anything to learn to fly. Uh, but as soon as we got back from the honeymoon, I signed up for ground school, uh, got my private ticket, um, just continued to fall more and more in love with flying. And I went on through uh, instrument. I became a ground instructor, started teaching ground. And, you know, I started thinking more and more like, you know, this is really what I want to do for a career. That's awesome. When, when you were, yeah, I want to take it. I want to take it back to like when you were a child, like your your six year old self. If he could see the future and see where you are right now as a pilot, would he be completely shocked? Or when you were younger, was there always a kind of interest in aviation? Uh, yeah, there was always an interest. <laughs> um, you know, get kids. I think always want to be uh, pilots, firemen, and astronauts. And I think at various times, I wanted to be any or all of the above. Um, I, I didn't have any pilot role models in my life, so there was nothing that really showed me the path to what what you could do in flying. Um, the only career I really knew about was being an airline pilot, um, and I, I didn't have sufficient interest when I was a kid to pursue that as a, as a primary goal. Um, and it really wasn't until I got my first GA ride that I realized there's a whole other side of flying, not to, not to diminish airline flying, because I know that's what you do. Um, but, you know, by the time I fell in love with flying, I was, uh, I was married with, uh, you know, looking towards having a kid and the airline pilot life I knew wouldn't work for me, at least not at that time. Uh, but I was very happy to, uh, to be able to, pursue aviation, um, first as uh, an avocation, then as uh, a vocation, even though I don't fly professionally. Um, you know, everything I do with AOPA as a lawyer is to help pilots. And that's very rewarding. Yeah, I bet that's rewarding. And and you brought up a very, very good point And one that a lot of people kind of have, especially when they're maybe they're first starting or they're younger. It's like, you, they only think they consider aviation and they, they look at it and it looks really cool, but they think, I don't want to be an airline pilot. I don't want to be gone for that long. But what they don't realize and you don't really realize until you do some some deep dive into aviation is that this is a career that you can do so many things and you can be an airline pilot, you can be a corporate pilot, you can fly for fun, you can start your own business, you get your own 135 company up and going if you want to, you can work for AOPA, for flight, garment aviation, like insert whatever aviation company you want. There's so many opportunities to have a job in aviation <laughs> and enjoy what we do. You don't have to fly professionally, you don't have to spend half your life on the road to be a pilot or to, to enjoy aviation, you know? Yep, that is absolutely true. And of course, you can even switch around. Um, one of the instructors uh, that I knew where, where I learned to fly at Freeway Airport here in Maryland, um, you know, he, he'd been flight instructing for decades on the weekends and, you know, had a, a regular, you know, nine to five job in banking. Um, and I retired out of there and went to the fly, went to fly for the airlines for a few years because he hadn't aged out yet. So, you know, there, there's so much more to aviation than a lot of people realize. Um, and once you get your foot in the door and you get to see what the options are, you know, you, you can move around and find different niches and it's very exciting. 
what was it about aviation? What was it about your first flight that you took when uh, you're growing up uh, with uh, your wife's cousin and you're like, man, if he can do it, I can do it. What was it about it that made you want to, to even start flying? Was it maybe just the, the joy of flying, being up in the air, how cool it is? Or was there anything specifically that kind of caught your eye and made you want to do it? I think it was what you said, just the, the joy of flying, how cool it is. It, it may sound a little bit cliched, but, you know, just the, the perspective. You're up there, you're moving in three dimensions, you're higher than the birds, and you, you get to see something that very few people are privileged to see. Um, you know, certainly a, a lot of people get to look out the window of an airliner. Um, not a lot of people get to actually hold the yoke and move the airplane. Uh, and it's just, you know, I, I grin thinking about it. Um, like I said, it's just from the moment I took that first flight to today, um, you know, I haven't stopped thinking about flying. What do you normally fly? What, when, you, when you have the opportunity, what kind of plane do you go fly? Uh, typically, I'm in uh, the Humble 172. Uh, my flying club's got a 172 uh, Mike 1976 model that they have owned uh, almost since new. Um, so they've had it a few decades. Uh, I've been in that flying club for, I think, about five years now. I uh, got my instrument rating in that airplane and uh, flied as much as I can, which <laughs> lately hasn't been uh, hardly at all. Um, but yeah, I've got more 172 time than uh, than anything else. But <laughs> whenever there's another uh, airplane available to fly, if a, a friend you know got a, an open seat or something, I certainly say yes. <laughs> yeah, that's smart. Very, very smart. Always say yes to the airplane ride. <laughs> if you trust the person, if you don't yes, trust the person, indeed. maybe say no. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And uh, on that point, saying yes to an airplane ride, it, it truly changed my whole life. I have a different career now because of it. That's crazy. When, so you were, when you're going for this ride and saying yes, it was probably more of like, uh, yeah, I'll go like, be cool to fly an airplane. You never knew that this would be such a monumental moment in your life and make you want to eventually switch careers. Not necessarily switch careers, but change up your landscape of what your where you thought your life was going. Right. Yep, that is it's an accurate portrayal. Um, we were going to go for the you know the proverbial hundred dollar hamburger. It was my my cousin and his fiance, me and my fiance, just uh, going over to uh, to grab a bite to eat somewhere. And yeah, that was a point of inflection for, you know, a lot, a lot of my life since then. What did, uh, what was your fiance's reaction when you're taking that flight? Did she realize like, oh crap, he's going to want to do this forever. Like I'm, I'm married, I wanted to marry a lawyer. Like I don't want to marry an airline pilot. <laughs> well, she actually knew me since before I even went to law school. So she's been supporting me the whole time. But before she even knew she might gasp, end up married to a lawyer. Uh, but no, I don't think she knew that day. I think it probably took a little while for her to see that this wasn't just something cool that I enjoyed that afternoon, uh, that it really lit a spark that was going to burn for a long time. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know if it was like immediately you're laying, you're like, doing it, I'm switching, <laughs> done with law, I'm going, in, I'm going to be an airline pilot, whatever. <laughs> She's like, no. No, no, it, it was... It was more so, this is great, I'm interested, I want to learn more about it. Um, so I started downloading flight simulators, and I started reading books and all of this. I'm, um, I'm generally a pretty cautious fellow, so you know I didn't, didn't dive in in terms of spending money right away. But I dived in, I dove in in terms of spending time right away to learn more about it. I like that. I like that you brought that up because a lot of people want to do this. A lot of people say, um, say in your situation or even farther, they want to be a career changer. Maybe they're, they are a banker and they want to start becoming a pilot or say they're 15 years old and they want to start somewhere. 
what did you do to start? Like starting is the hardest thing, but it's also, I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but it's, it's hard and it's easy at the same time. Like all you have to do is just start. You just have to read a book, but it's hard because it's such a huge mountain that you see yourself having to climb and it's going to be a lot of hard work and dedication. But what did you do to start that process? What Do you remember what books you bought, uh, who, who you researched, YouTube videos you watched or anything like that? Um, yes. Well, later, after I already had the interest, I read a lot of books by Richard Collins. Um, there, there's one thing I'll have to circle back with you on. The very first book I read, I'll have to check my Amazon um, my Amazon order list because I'm, <laughs> I'm in my home office now. Um, all these books are, are on the bookshelf in my office in Frederick, Maryland at AOPA headquarters. Um, but there, there was a book about getting your private pilot license that uh, or I'm, a, I'm an aviation lawyer. I should say certificate. <laughs> there was a book about getting your private pilot. Yeah, there's a book about getting your private pilot certificate, uh, and it might have just been called something like your pilot license or something. I'll, I'll look it up. I'll get back to you on that. Um, but circling back to your point, yes, it is both hard and easy at the same time to dive in. Easy in the sense that you just have to do it, but you might not know what that first step is. But yes, that first step can just be um, reading a book, uh, and, and the best thing that I think you can do that's, that's free, even cost less than a book is, you know, become an airport bum, you know, find a general aviation airport near you. Um, because of course there's security at, uh, at your class Bravo, big international airports. You can't just go talk to the guys on the ramp and the pilots and everything else, but your general aviation airports are typically very warm, welcoming places. There's almost always a hot cup of coffee waiting for you. <laughs> it might not be any good, um, but it's going to be there. And it, yeah, it's there. There's going to be a beat up couch and there's going to be a lot of people who know a lot more than you. Um, and it is a whole different world. It's ha- it has its own, you know, nomenclature and vocabulary. Um, you know, it has its own circles um, that, that intersect. Um, but, you know, I, I went after I, I started reading the book and I downloaded the flight simulator. I started looking at who had flight lessons and I didn't just go sign up. I went to go, you know, meet the instructors and look at the airplanes and, you know, just see what the whole thing looked like and felt like. And, um, you know, so some of my best friends, friends who I think are going to be lifelong friends, uh, are, you know, fellow pilots, you know, student pilots who came with me, some of the instructors that I've had, um, have, you know, developed into really great relationships. Um, so the, the, you know, the, I think there's a line from, um, um, forgive me if I mispronounce his name, Paul Poveresny, the, the EAA founder, that something along the lines of, I, I came to aviation for the airplanes and I stayed for the people. Forgive me if I'm misquoting it, but I, I think that that's absolutely true. Agree. 100% agree. The community here is unbelievable and and anyone coming in will, will be welcomed with open arms. It's not weird to show up at your airport unless, like you said, unless you go to Dulles and expect to go talk to people and go see airplanes, that's a bad idea. That's going to end up very, very differently than going to your local GA airport. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a great community. Um, it's one that I've fallen, it's one that I fall more in love with every single day. And it's one of the reasons why I love what I do is just the people that you get to meet. Um, I kind of had an interesting question. This leads into your training and law school. So you're you're obviously a very, very smart person, a very brilliant guy to go through law school and you had to read a lot, do all that. But in flight training, did you ever find a moment where maybe you thought it was too much? It was too hard. It was too difficult. Did you ever have like a breaking point where you didn't think you could do it? Um, It's a good question. I don't think I ever had a breaking point where I thought I couldn't do it. Um, But I will say 
Um, you know, I had some of the, the very frustrating plateaus that I, I think are relatively common in flight training, um, where you go and, you know, you're trying to do a certain maneuver, you know, a steep turn or whatever it is. Um, and you just, you get to a certain point and you just, you can't get any better. You might be out of tolerances, you're losing too much altitude or whatever the case may be. Um, and try, try as I might, I just couldn't get better. Um, and, you know, I think the usual advice in those situations is take a step back. You know, maybe if you're having trouble with steep turns, you know, go practice takeoffs and landings or, you know, whatever works. But you said that I was, brilliant. And I don't know about that. I certainly was a, a hard worker to make it through law school. And I was a hard worker as a flight student as well. Um, and those times as a student pilot that I hit those plateaus, I remember very frustrated that I, I certainly thought, I, I can't do it today. Um, I'm not there yet. Um, it, and you know, sometimes you just got to take a step back, practice something else, um, do a different maneuver, go back to the books and study the FARs and come back fresh. And, you know, eventually you do make it past those plateaus. Yeah, you do. And you bring up a good point. It's like, if you're struggling with steep turns, go do something else. But there's one day I was flying where I struggled with steep turns, stalls, whatever it may be. Then I went to go do what I was good at. And I also struggled with that. <laughs> so that was like kind of even bigger hit on, uh, sometimes the best thing to do is just land and, and go take the day off and do something you enjoy. Go golfing, go, uh, go watch a movie and just like separate yourself for a day and give yourself a break and refresh and go back out and do it again. Yep, that that sounds like very good advice. Um, like you could say this about a lot of things, but it's certainly true for for flight training. is a, It is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, it takes a lot of hard work, but you don't you don't have to do that hard work all in one day. And it's certainly fine to take a take a break, like you said, go watch a movie, get a good night's sleep come back another day and, and start fresh. Absolutely. And uh, I want to talk, so you took this GA flight. We're going to transition to AOPA a little bit now. You took this GA flight. Sure. You you kind of were, kind of an idea went off in your head like, all right, this is cool. Like, how can I, kind of like crafting a plan, doing some deep dive and research, figuring out what you want to do. Did you have an idea that this was going to lead you to changing jobs to AOPA? Or did you think maybe I'd just get my private? When did it kind of, when did AOPA kind of come into the picture? So AOPA came into the picture fairly early um, when I was a student pilot. You know, I got the free six-month membership. And I started reading the flight training magazine, which, which to this day I think is a, a fantastic magazine. Um, and so I started to learn more. This was all when I was, you know, studying, working to, towards my private certificate. Um, I appreciated the, the benefits that uh, AOPA had to offer the magazine, the other resources, helping me learn about aviation, helping me along in my studies. Um, so very quickly, I signed up. I became a, a paying member of AOPA. Um, even at that point, I didn't think I'd ever end up working there. I was, I was working towards my private, you know, as a hobby, um, but as something that I enjoyed. I, I wasn't necessarily thinking about it as a career. Um, but I, I would say a little bit later when I got uh, further along into instrument training, which studying for your instrument rating, I think is a lot more book work than flying, at least it was for me. And I began to see some synergies between my training as a lawyer and trying to understand the FARs. And I, I developed more and more of an interest at, you know, getting good at them, learning them well, teaching other people. Um, that's what led first to me becoming a ground instructor and, and later to me actually wanting to do aviation law as a career. 
it's interesting you bring up being a ground instructor. Uh, was there, because I've heard of other people be a ground instructor. I don't really think people know that you can be a ground instructor and not necessarily be a CFI at the same time. Uh, is your goal to be a CFI as well, or you just enjoy teaching kind of uh, the, the written side or the, the knowledge side? Yeah, my goal is definitely to be a CFI as well. Um, and, and frankly, it's, it's not that far out of reach at, at the moment. I've already gotten my commercial certificate um, and I've already got the ground instructor you know, squared away. Um, so yes, yeah, CFI is a goal one day, hopefully one day soon. Um, but you know, ground instructor for somebody who's just starting out is much more attainable. You know, you, a lot of people, as you said, don't know that that certificate even exists. They might not know that you can be a ground instructor without being a, a certificated flight instructor. They might not know you can be a ground instructor without even being a pilot. That's now, I certainly crazy. think being a pilot. <laughs> Yeah, I certainly think being a pilot, you know, gives you more context to bring to the table because um, it's useful to be able to connect what you're teaching out of the book with an actual flight that you've taken. Um, but yeah, the ground instructor certificate is a freestanding certificate. And as long as you are able to get through the knowledge tests, which to be frank, the ground instructor knowledge tests are, are really not any more grueling. You know, advanced ground instructor is very similar to the the commercial knowledge test instrument ground instructor is uh, very similar to the instrument rating airplane knowledge test. And of course, those two are both very similar to the CFI and the, the CFII um, tests. So, you know, what, when you, when you look at all of that, you know, it's really not hard for a dedicated private pilot like I was to get a ground instructor rating, get in the classroom. Um, and, and there's no way, there's no better way to learn something really well than by teaching it. Um, you know, for every hour I spent teaching ground, I, I probably spent two or three hours preparing the lessons. Um, and that was really invaluable. And, and that, that drove me to study in a way that I wouldn't have studied just, you know, for my own benefit. It was really for the benefit of the class and that turned around and helped me. And, and I would want to ask, um, before you became an airline pilot, what, were you a CFI yourself? No, I wasn't. So I flew, I, I didn't want to be a CFI, not because I didn't think I could do it or I don't have any respect for it. It was mainly because I knew my my goals for being a CFI were probably not going to be the best for my students because I just wanted time. I wanted to get time as quick as possible. And I didn't want to get to a point where I just left my students high and dry or I just felt like I would have been in it for the wrong reasons. So I went aerial survey, freight route, and then a commercial pilot or then a, a corporate airline pilot. Very good. And yeah, as we were talking about before, <laughs> there's a lot of ways to get there wherever there is for you uh, in aviation. And certainly, I think a lot of people think that the only way you get to the airlines is either coming out of the military or being a flight instructor. But, you know, as you pointed out for your own path, there, there's any number of ways to get there. And I'm sure you, lot, you learned a lot of useful things along the way. Yeah, definitely. I, I learned a lot. And it's uh, I'm really glad I went that route. Uh, it really kind of opened my eyes to how Life on the road is, and I kind of learned a lot of useful information that maybe you don't learn as a flight instructor. Uh, you build you build great time either way. It's just a little bit different. All right. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, let's go into you in AOPA now. So, you are at AOPA. Was it a difficult decision for you to leave your current job to go to AOPA, or is it kind of a no-brainer? Uh, like, I, this is a dream job, aviation, law, like, I can't get any better than this. It, it absolutely was a dream job. And at the end of the day, there was no way I was going to say no once I got the job offer. Um, it was still a difficult decision to make, though. 
um, even though it was almost a foregone conclusion because it was a dream job in aviation law. Because I, I had been with a great group of people working in-house at the software company. Like I said, I had been there since uh, since law school, uh, I think my second summer in law school, and I ended up staying with that company for just about 10 years. Um, I knew them really well. They're, they're still friends. And you know, leaving a situation like that where you're good at your job, you get along with everybody there. That that's never easy. Um, but you know, I I knew that it, it was time to make a change. It felt like the right change, uh, and I went for it. That's awesome. Sometimes you just got to go for it. You know, if you feel it is very difficult to make that decision to make that change to get out of what's comfortable, get out of what you're used to, and go for the dream job. And and here you are now. And I'm guessing you don't have any regrets for it, right? Nope, no regrets at all. I've been with AOPA uh, about four years now, um, and I, I like it as much on the inside as I did from the outside. Um, you know, even without talking about what I do with the legal services plan, AOPA is just a great organization. They're they're advocating for the right things. You know, your freedom to fly. It's great. Yeah, and this is one of the great things about the series that we're doing with AOPA is just opening up AOPA because a lot of people kind of uh, maybe similar to what you were when you first found out AOPA. It was a magazine and kind of a membership card and, and maybe a website. But what you don't realize is what AOPA is really fighting for, what they really stand for and what their actual kind of mission is and how many different organizations there are under AOPA. <laughs> and when you get that membership card in that magazine, that your knowledge might stop there. But, and this is what I love about this, is now we're going to dive into to what AOPA actually does, what each individual department does, and, and how and why it's very important for you to have a membership and what you can exercise with that membership. Yep, sounds good. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> so you uh, talk a little bit about the legal services side. Talk a little bit about uh, AOPA, uh, pilot protection services, legal services, just kind of just what you do on a daily basis and what you can be offered by having this service. Sure. So I'll talk a little bit about the plan itself first. Um, pilot protection services is really a combination of two different things uh, that are bundled together. It's the legal services plan, um, which I work for directly. And we also at AOPA have a, a medical certification staff. Uh, and there are medical certification benefits under pilot protection services as well. Um, now, you can always call our medical certification specialists with questions. Um, but as far as what's actually available as plan benefits, um, there, there's two really important medical certification benefits. One is uh, that our medical specialists will check your medical application or uh, in a bundle of information before you actually submit that uh application before you go see your Amy for the flight physical, just to help you run down if there's, you know, any red flags, anything that might result in a deferral, you know, perhaps letting you know that you might need some kind of an extra status report that'll save you some time if you have that before you go in for your flight physical. Um, so they'll review the records before you submit them or before you submit your application. They'll also do a status check if your application is deferred, which Oak City gets very busy. Sometimes it takes a while uh, working through these medical certification issues. And uh, our folks at AOPA will actually reach out directly to Oak City, ask about the status and, and help you know clear up if there's any ambiguity. Now, that's, that, that's what the folks in medical do. I can talk in more detail about what the folks in legal do because I'm, I'm one of them. I'm a staff attorney with the legal services plan, um, what, one, of the, one of the more senior ones. Um, and we've got a number of great benefits for pilots. Um, so there, there are several 
different benefits and maybe we can put a, a link to the plan description or the coverage rundown in the show notes. Um, so I'll, I'll start with our, our most common three call types. Um, those are, those include what I call both the, <laughs> the happy and the less happy benefits. Um, aircraft purchase and sale, the transaction benefit it is one of our top three calls and those are generally pretty happy calls. Um, we've also got calls that people aren't as thrilled to make, such as, you know, if there's an FAA investigation for uh, pilot deviation, like a runway incursion or busting a TFR. Uh, and then rounding up the top three, what we'll call accidents or incidents. Um, and I'll say most people think of an aircraft accident as something really bad, and it, it could be. But the vast majority of those calls that we get, I'm, I'm happy to say, are relatively minor. You know, maybe the airplane got a little bit bent. Typically, nobody gets hurt. Um, but, you know, maybe you need a new wingtip or, you know, a landing gear, tire replacement, things of that nature. So um, I, I'm very happy to say that generally when there are mishaps, um, at least when we hear about them, they are relatively minor. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that, that is good. It, when you think about accidents, you always think about the worst. You don't think about maybe the, uh, the incidents or the accidents that don't make the headlines as much because everyone's okay. Maybe the plane looks okay. Originally no big fire or whatever it may be. So that's good that you offer those services. Like one quick question that was popping up in my head. Is there anything like, are you, so obviously it's a legal service that's offered. I'm guessing you don't have to represent the pilot. I'm guessing there's something in there where like if they did something that was very dangerous or disastrous, you don't have to represent them, right? Or is it kind of like AOPA membership where you're a lawyer no matter what? No, it's really, we provide, you know, the, the plan benefits and our legal advice no matter what. The, the lawyer has a duty of zealous representation for the client. Um, and, you know, what we do is more like legal triage in-house than, you know, actual representation. You know, as staff attorneys, um, we will go show up in court to argue on behalf of a particular airman. Um, what, what we do is we actually pay the legal fees for a local attorney um, who licensed to practice wherever that member who needs it is um, to advocate directly for that member with FAA or, or whomever else may be involved, at least as long as it's a covered matter. So, you know, typically people will call us, we'll give them whatever advice we can. Um, you know, in the case of something like an accident or an incident, we want to determine, first of all, does it rise to the level of an accident that's reportable to the National Transportation Safety Board? Um, and, you know, Usually it's not. Like I said, thankfully, most of these are very minor. Um, only injuries involving serious, sorry, only accidents involving serious injuries or fatalities or substantial damage to the aircraft are reportable to the NTSB. Um, so if it's reportable to the NTSB, they've got to report it. Uh, if it's not, you know, we, we give the we give them advice. We get them referred out. We uh, pay the bills up to the plan limits for a local attorney to personally represent that airman and help them with, you know, whatever else they need for that accident. That's good to know. Yeah. See, cause I, I don't know too much about it. So that makes a lot of sense that you guys, you guys kind of find a, a lawyer to specialize and help them. And, and you cover those fees for the, uh, the person that you're technically representing. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's an, I'm not saying that we don't represent them when they call in. Um, it, it's an attorney client privilege conversation. Um, we are acting as their lawyers, but we're, we're limited in what we can do um, just being where we are and, you know, with the staffing that we have. So we, we maintain a network of uh, 
something like 650 attorneys in all 50 states uh, to whom we refer cases through the plan. Um, so I, I had talked about uh, the most common calls we get. There are other benefits that we don't see calls about as much. Um, there are state and, and local actions. Uh, you know, some states and, and municipalities have their own rules about uh, aviation. Um, there's customs, there's TSA, um, there's tax matters. We don't see a lot of calls on those. We do see a decent amount of document review calls, um, things like uh, a hangar rental or uh, you, you're going to lease your aircraft back to an FBO. Uh, you know, we can look at those documents. So there, there's decent traffic on those, just not as much as the top three. Um, and, and whenever there is an issue that actually depends on state law, we have to refer that out to uh, to a an attorney in the proper state. Um, when it's something federal like FAA or NTSB, um, you know, we're certainly qualified to discuss those issues at length. Uh, but if the member needs it, we will refer that member out for an attorney to personally represent them and actually show up to court for them, for example. Is this something that's covered in your standard uh, AOPA membership or is this something that might cost a little bit more to sign up for? That is a great question. <laughs> like a lot of questions you might ask a lawyer, the answer is it depends. Uh, there's there's two levels to our plan. There's basic and plus level. Um, plus level is required to cover flight activities um, that require a commercial or ATP certificate. Um, basic is fine for you know your general aviation hobby pilot, um, uh, but I'll, I'll dive into that a little bit more in a minute. Plus level gives you typically more hours of coverage for something that would also be covered under basic. But as an example, if a CFI is out teaching with a student and they have a runway incursion, if that CFI only had basic level, we couldn't pay his legal fees because he didn't have the right level of coverage. So that's an important distinction that you need plus level for certain activities. Um, and then Circling back to whether you should have basic or plus, um, there are some airline pilots who have legal coverage through their union um, or otherwise who specifically get basic level with us just for their $100 hamburgers on the weekend. And that's fine. You know, we just want to make sure that they understand that if they, if they have a runway incursion in a Part 121 operation, we're not going to cover that because they're not plus level, um, but they're absolutely covered for whatever happens on their recreational flight on the weekend, even though they might hold an ATP. They're only exercising private pilot privileges, and the basic level of PPS will cover them for that. Is this something that, say, you gave the scenario of a, a CFI that had the basic level and they have a runway incursion and they need plus level services? Is this something that they can pay for? Or like, be like, all right, well, I'll pay the extra money now. Or is this something that you have to be covered by the certain level when this happens. It, it is the latter. And unfortunately, we do see some cases where somebody has the wrong level or you know, actually more commonly, they just weren't a, a participant at all at the time of the event. Um, in either case, they're entitled to what we call Benefit G. Um, that's a, a free half-hour consultation with a local panel attorney. They also have the option to speak with somebody in-house if they want. But if that case escalates and that that member needs somebody to show up to court, that member is going to have to go out of pocket for the attorney's fees. We're, we're not able to write a check to that attorney for somebody who either signed up after the fact or somebody who had the wrong level of coverage for the specific event. Um, but what one more thing that, that I want to make clear that there are different numbers of hours we will pay for for different benefits. Um, aircraft purchase details is a straightforward one. Basically, 
levels one hour plus levels two hours. Um, all things being equal, if you're behind an aircraft uh, in your own name and you're going to be the only pilot, um, basic level might be fine. If you're going to enter into a, a co-ownership or you know start up an LLC with, with three partners in that airplane, probably best to get the plus level coverage so we can pay for two hours of a local attorney's time to help you with the contract because it's just going to be more complicated. One hour might not be enough. When you so obviously you you kind of mentioned that the most common thing isn't I have basic but I need plus now I wish I had it it's more of I don't have anything and I I wish I could do that do you think that it's more of they don't know that the service is there or it's just one of those things that they're like well I mean yeah that's there but I don't think I'd ever need that you know yeah and my intuition is that it is more so that they don't know that it's there. Um, I certainly think there is some of, oh, it can never happen to me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people just don't know that the legal services plan and pilot protection services is out there. Um, you know, but less commonly, I think, yeah, people uh, either had it and let it lapse or they just, you know, knew about it and never signed up for it because they didn't think anything bad was ever going to happen to them. Right. I mean, no one does. You, you never think you're going to be the one flying over West Virginia and your engine fails and you get to land on the side of a mountain. Not saying that happened to me. It might have, and it did, but you never think that that can actually happen to you. Uh, it, one of those things with yeah. aviation is always being prepared, and aviation is inherently expensive to the core, uh, whether it's flying, whether it's a $100 hamburger, no matter what it is. And sometimes it's worth having the, the, paying a little bit extra money to have the extra protection. Uh, now everyone needs to come to this decision on their own and you truly need to weigh the pros and the cons and figure out if it's right for you. And like you said, you have different membership levels, but it would just be a shame if you find yourself in a situation and you don't have that, that coverage or that help when you, when you had the opportunity to have it just because maybe you want to save a couple bucks when you're already spending an amazing amount of money on aviation as is. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, certainly there are some people who get sticker shock. Um, airplanes aren't cheap. Even the cheap ones <laughs> aren't cheap to operate. Um, but yeah, at, at the end of the day, uh, and I don't get a commission for saying this, but you know, signing up even for the plus level is probably not going to cost you any more than one hour of uh, wet Hobbs time in you know whatever piston trainer you're flying. So it's certainly worth looking at, and it, and it does work a little bit like car insurance, that if you don't have it when something happens, happens. You know, when you sign up after the fact, you know, we're still going to get you some resources and, and refer you to people who can help. But, you know, we, we can't actually pay your legal bills if you didn't have it when the event that triggered your need right. occurred. Aviation, I interrupt today's Pilot to Pilot podcast with a message from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Why you might ask? Well, you might be finding yourself with some free time and you always thought, maybe I can make a better podcast than Justin. Well, here is your chance to do so. Go to anchor.fm or the Anchor app and you can download it for free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money, that's right, money for your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need in one place to make a podcast. Go to Anchor app or anchor.fm to get started today. When you're, you mentioned a little bit about uh, the different plans, so say your example was aircraft ownership and how you have an hour, you have an hour for the basic and two hours for the plus. Uh, say crazy thing happens, you pay for the the plus and for some reason it, it requires three hours. How does the pilot get billed for that? Or is it like, well, we didn't anticipate this. We'll still cover this. How does that work? Or has that ever happened? 
Um, it has certainly happened that that deals have taken you know more than two hours, and you know when you think most of our purchase sale calls are about you know piston general aviation aircraft, but you know we do get calls about uh, multi-engine jets that people are buying. Um, you know some of which will be owned through holding companies or operated internationally. Um, so yeah, there's certainly the potential for some transactions to take well over two hours. So the member there should have you know uh, an engagement letter with the attorney who's representing them. The attorney who's representing them, you know, should be upfront with an estimate of how much time it's going to take. And the the member is responsible for anything over the two hours. But um, ideally, that's not going to be a surprise that the member finds out after the fact. That's good. Yeah, that was kind of my question. To kind of like, what happens? Is it anticipated? Obviously. Uh, you probably have a small piston plane down to a science and you know you can do it in 46 minutes and 30 seconds every single time, no matter what. <laughs> so I'm right. guessing that's not an issue whatsoever. Uh, you brought up also... Yeah, how, I think... Oh, sorry. Keep going. Oh, no. Sorry. You, you go ahead. I was just going to transition to something else. I was just going to bring up uh, the free half-hour consultation. That's available for every single AOPA member. Just want to clarify that. That is available specifically for people who have pilot protection services. Now, many of the attorneys to whom many of the attorneys to whom refer cases will give a, a free consultation to anybody, but not all. And there are certainly some attorneys on our list who have opted out of giving the free half hour consultation. That that is a choice that we allow them to make. Um, so, you know, People who don't have even AOPA memberships, much less PPS, we can still give them a list of local attorneys. Um, they're not necessarily going to get a free half-hour consultation. The free half-hour consultation is going to be guaranteed for anybody who actually signs up for PPS, even if it's after the fact, even if they have the wrong level of coverage. Um, we're still going to connect them with panel attorneys who have agreed to do that free half-hour consultation. So that alone can be worthwhile. Um, you know, I'd, I'd rather see somebody sign up after the fact and not at all because the next time something happens, um, they will be covered. And, you know, even if they were late on the first one, at least they're going to be protected for anything that happens going forward. Yeah, for sure. I'm looking at uh, one of the slides that you sent me and you sent me the top 10 most common type of calls and it lists out every single year and I'm looking at all of them and they all almost look like they're increasing. Now, would you say they're increasing because more people are aware of the legal service and they're using it or are more people getting in trouble where they require your service? That is a great question. And I, I think the answer is both. Uh, I think they're both true at the same time. I, I think our marketing folks are, are doing a great job of getting the word out there. Um, from what I have seen, there's generally very positive word of mouth. You know, working as a lawyer, people are sometimes calling you on their worst day. Um, but I think for the most part, people are generally very happy with the advice and the resources that we're able to give them. I think they generally recommend that their friends and fellow pilots sign up. So we've had a lot of word of mouth referrals. We've had a lot of um, new signups come in through marketing. And also, in a sense, I think more people are getting in trouble. And the reason for that is the FAA's compliance program. Um, a lot of the audience might have heard of this referred to as the compliance philosophy. Some people call it the kinder, gentler FAA. Um, they changed the name of it, I believe, about a year ago from compliance philosophy to compliance program. I don't know why, but hey, at least we didn't have to change the acronym. or <laughs> the initials. It's still CP. Uh, That's the kinder and, and gentler and so, FAA for you. 
there you go. So that that change happened uh, in late 2015. Um, you know, previous to that, there were some kinder, gentler options like remedial training uh, or administrative actions available. But a lot more cases went to enforcement. Enforcement meaning usually uh, a suspension or revocation of a pilot certificate or perhaps a civil penalty as a fine. Um, nowadays, under compliance for anything that is an inadvertent deviation. It's typically going to be eligible for compliance. And what that means is the FAA inspector at the FISDA, who's actually talking with the pilot and trying to resolve the case, he has a lot more discretion to use things like a counseling conversation, assign wings courses, assign you know a training syllabus with a CFI, um, rather than sending it to the FAA attorneys, having to develop evidence for an enforcement case to suspend that pilot certificate. Now, that's pretty good for the pilot overall that, you know, they, they can resolve it with some training, fix the root cause so it doesn't happen again and move on. But what we think is happening is that a consequence of that is that the inspectors simply have more bandwidth. And so I think the FAA inspectors at the FISDOs are able to reach out and touch more pilots. Um, so there are more pilots getting scrutiny now for whatever noncompliance may be happening. Uh, it could be, like I said, anything from a from a runway incursion to you know flying with an expired medical or whatever the case may be. Um, most of those cases are not going to enforcement, but there are more cases. Just as a, as a raw number, more people are getting you know, phone calls and emails and letters from FAA than previously. When you talk about the FAA, it's kind of the idea, I mean, when I think of the FAA, I think of the enforcer. I kind of, not necessarily get intimidated, but you're not like, it's not your, your favorite day when you get a phone call or when you have to go meet one or go talk to one or even see someone wearing an FAA shirt, hat, whatever it may be. In your experience working with the FAA, has that kind of been, what's, what, what is the FAA like? Like, what is their general outlook toward all this? Are they like trying to get people in trouble or, you know, because everyone thinks that they're out there trying to get them. They're all out there trying to get them. But is their main goal, obviously, just to keep the airspace safe, keep everyone safe? Are they pretty easy to work with or is it pretty cut and dry? And if you mess up, it's, it's kind of a long hill. It's an uphill battle to get on top or to get a, a good outcome. Yeah, uh, I will say there are some unfortunate outlier cases. Um, where the FAA can look like they're being pretty difficult. On the whole, I do have to give them credit with the move towards compliance um, and, and their focus on, yeah, obviously, yes, they're, they're mandated to keep the airspace safe. But the way that they do that, they have made a lot of positive changes. You know, it's, it, it's not all roses. Um, and certainly, we've had pilots who have had interactions with FAA uh, inspectors that we found troubling. But in the overwhelming majority of cases, the FAA inspectors who are actually dealing with the pilots are reasonable. Um, they're being fair. They're generally resolving things through compliance without going to enforcement. And, you know, the FAA is working to recover from, I think, a pretty big image problem. Uh, a lot of pilots probably remember what happened to Bob Hoover and, and the situation with his medical certificate. Um, and in the old days, you know, even for a, a relatively minor inadvertent pilot deviation, a pilot could very well be looking at a suspension for a first offense. Um, now, that's what it was like. There's nothing they can do about that. But to their credit, I think that they have realized that 
instead of just dropping the hammer for the first inadvertent infraction, if they can meet the pilot where he is, figure out you know what went wrong and figure out what to do differently next time so that there's not another breach of compliance, that that's the best way forward. And that, that truly is what we're seeing in, in almost all cases. That's good because, I mean, that's good for, for not only the way that they are perceived by the general aviation public or pilots in general, but it's also going to help out, I think, pilots in the long run. I think that they're going to, if they can see them more as not necessarily a friend, they don't need to be a friend, but if they don't, aren't terrified of them all the time and if they can understand that maybe it's just a teaching moment, like your check ride, you can still have a teaching moment. You can, it's okay. Like we, we see you messed up. Let's figure out why you messed up. And instead of taking what is important to you and your license and kind of making you look like a terrible pilot and shaming you, we're going to figure out what happened. We're going to fix it. And then we're just not going to do that again. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, yeah, that, that, that is the goal, um, that, that is what they're trying to do. And, you know, change management is hard, but like I said, credit where credit is due. We've seen them come a long way in a few years and, and we're certainly happier with where FAA is now than where they were say five years ago. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad that they're making that change. And I feel like it's a, it's been noticeable by the, the general aviation public, uh, like you said, it's been five years. It takes a while to rewrite a reputation, so it's still going to take a little bit of time, but they've been doing a good job so far. Yeah, I do. Yeah, hats off to them. It's not perfect, and they're not done, um, but they're moving in the right direction. Yeah, they don't have an easy job, that's for sure. They Having to be the one that lays the law down, you're never going to be perceived how you want to be perceived, and you can always do so, you're always going to do something wrong. So more of recently, and it's probably some of YouTube's fault, and you see these really cool videos of people having these drones and just doing these really cool shots over cities, airports in the past, and more specifically, you've probably seen it. Uh, I think it was, was it the Blue Angels over Philadelphia? Or I can't remember what the city was, but there was a drone that was almost in their flight path. And I'm talking about like 100 feet, not even 100 feet away from uh, them performing. Did you see that? Yeah, I did see the headline. Um, I haven't had a chance to read up on it, but it's certainly scary. And it brings back memories of, uh, I think it was a U.S. Army Blackhawk that was actually uh, a write-off from a drone strike uh, somewhere near New York a couple years ago. They, they managed to make it down safely, um, but apparently the rotors were shot <laughs> and, uh, and and unable to be repaired. But that, so, that yeah, brings the, up an, an interesting part of aviation and possibly the future or what could be a pretty big future of aviation is unmanned flying aircraft and drones. And I mean, right now, everyone wants to take that cool shot. They might not even realize the significance of what they could be doing to the airspace system or the dangers that they could be causing by flying to go get that sunset flight. Uh, what what does AOPA offer for, for that? So say you have your drone license, you're, you're out flying, like what are the protections for it? How do people find themselves in trouble with, with drones? Is it busting airspace, flying too close to a tower? Kind of what's, uh, give me a little rundown about protections for drones and what we're seeing there. Sure. So AOPA does have a drone membership, um, and it's actually a little bit different. You get different swag and things like that, and a different newsletter um, with, with you know information specifically geared to drone pilots. And yeah, I will say there's certainly uh, more drone uh, pilot deviations than we even know about because most of them go unreported. They're small and 
you know, if you're flying near an aircraft, uh, a manned aircraft, that manned aircraft doesn't always see the drone. Um, yes, the, the legal services plan does have some coverage available for drone pilots. Um, for uh, a Part 107 uh, pilot, you know, they, they do need the plus level because a Part 107 uh, you know, remote UAS certificate allows you to conduct commercial operations. So it's in some ways tantamount to a commercial certificate for a manned aircraft. But there is coverage available through the legal services plan for drone pilots in a addition to the, the drone pilot subscription and newsletter that AOPA, AOPA has in general. Um, now, there are certainly a lot of drone pilots who don't have a certificate. Um, there's a lot of drone pilots who might not be aware of things like temporary flight restrictions and other airspace rules. Uh, unfortunate, though, it may be AOPA and FAA are both trying uh, education and outreach um, you know, to get those pilots to be you know, good citizens in the national airspace system. Um, and just because somebody doesn't have a pilot certificate, it doesn't mean that FAA can't apply the compliance program. Um, and in general, just like with other types of pilot deviations, if uh, a hobby drone pilot has some type of violation, even if that pilot doesn't have a, a 107 certificate, they could still get you know counseling or remedial training through the FAA's compliance program. But I will say, um, for certain violations, such as uh, violating a, a firefighting TFR, um, FAA sanction guidance says that you know, there's no compliance. It's going to be enforcement. And we do unfortunately see uh, drone pilots, you know, operating in firefighting TFRs. We see the firefighting manned aircraft have to knock off their operations and wait. And we do see FAA enforcement in those cases when they can find the operators. So um, education is, is really the key. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting part. It's like, how do you educate someone that just goes to DJI.com and buys a drone and has no idea of the FAA airspace? They have no idea about aviation in general. They just want to uh, take this cool video so they can share it with their friends. And then what what later you know and what you think is maybe that video is never going to go viral, but then you get the Blue Angels at 100 feet away from you and everyone watches your video and now you're finding yourself in some serious trouble. Uh, it, how I don't know how they start with that. I guess you'd have to reach out to the companies and have better literature on one the dangers of flying a drone before you actually can buy one and go up. Yeah, I think there are efforts underway for that sort of thing. Um, now that uh, FAA drone registration is mandatory, I know there's some kind of you know notices on the boxes, or at least they're supposed to be, to alert pilots that yes, this is an aircraft. You got to register it with the FAA. It's only five bucks, but <laughs> you got to do it. You got to learn a little about uh, learn a little bit about the national airspace system that you're going to coexist in. Yeah, you definitely do. And it's, I mean, the the video could be amazing, but sometimes it's just not worth it, when, especially once you have an understanding of what you're doing and uh, the kind of situations you could be putting other people in and, and putting lives at risk and uh, huge equipment at risk. Yep. Um, what do you see as kind of like a common pilot, not a pilot deviation, but like a drone operator? Like what are they typically being reported for? Is it busting airspace? Is there anything in particular that you see pretty often when it comes to drones? Um. You know, thankfully, we don't see all that many violations. I'm not convinced that they're not happening. I think they might just be, you know, largely unreported, like I said. Um, but you know, it's it's very similar to the violations that come in for you know manned aircraft. It's uh, 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 some type of airspace incursion, or it's uh, flying too close to another aircraft. Um, so that there's there's nothing new under the sun. It's just happening on a smaller aircraft that's being piloted remotely. 
I agree. Yeah, it is a. I mean, they're probably not being reported because it is a really tiny aircraft. I mean, some of those DJI Mavics are are crazy small in what they can do. So the chance of you seeing it before an issue happens is very very slim, and they can probably run away and recover before anything ever happens. You can never find out who it was. Yeah, but I, I mean, it's definitely going to be an interesting part of the future of aviation. It's going to play a huge role because more and more people can get a drone. More and more people will be flying drones and it's going to play a huge part in our airspace system, especially if Amazon gets their wish with all the drones they want to fly. (laughs) Yep, I'm sure that that's true. Um, We've got people in our our government affairs office who are working on drone policy and remote ID and all those things trying to make it you know, work well. Um, and yeah, I guess that's a good opportunity for me to plug them. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that there's lots of different uh, facets and divisions within AOPA that people might not know about. Um, I think people, for the most part, know about uh, our Air Safety Institute, for example, and, and the Pilot Information Center that they can call in with questions. Um, a lot of people may not know. We have a, a small office uh, in Washington, D.C. that is for advocacy. You know, It allows us to send our, our folks there um, to essentially lobby for pilots. You know, They can go right to the FAA building. They can go right to Congress, and they do regularly. Um, we've also got some government affairs folks who don't work in that D.C. office. Uh, there are regional managers um, and, and ambassadors. They actually are where you are. Um, you know, Each group of states or each area in the country is going to have a regional manager who's close, um, both geographically uh, and substantively, who, who knows the issues at the local airports, who's going to you know, show up to the state house um, and advocate for a bill that's going to help uh, alleviate some sales tax uh, on a general aviation purchase, for example. So you know, there, there really are a lot of unsung heroes at AOPA, and I'm glad for them. Yeah, I, you got that right. You know, you hit it, the nail right on the head or whatever that saying is as well. I probably butchered that too, but you, you are exactly right. And that's a great service and it's very, very needed for, for our freedoms, for everything else. And uh, yeah, very thankful for that. Yeah, um, well, a couple more questions. I know we're getting ready to leave, uh, but I wanted to briefly touch on social media. Now we talked a little bit about drones and how people are trying to fly drones, get that sweet shot. But you obviously, you see people that look up to Steve-O's, to Flight Chops, to Trent Palmer, to other people that are trying to be social media famous. You know, it looks cool. It looks awesome. You have some great stuff in the cockpit. What, as a lawyer and what you see, what is your advice to someone that wants to film that kind of stuff? What do you see? Like, is it ever okay? Is it never okay? What's your kind of guidance and guidelines on that? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a pretty cautious fellow, so this might be an unpopular opinion, but uh, my general advice is going to be, don't do it. You know, I really question whether the juice is worth the squeeze. I mean, if you're flight chops and this is what you do and it's part of your life and it's part of your livelihood, then that's a different story. Um, but for your typical pilot who took a great flight and is excited about it and has some cool shots, there is a downside to posting that stuff and sharing it with the whole world. Um, you know, you, you truly are with the way social media is these days. You truly are inviting the whole world into the cockpit with you. That includes your neighbor that you have a running dispute with because his sense is in disrepair or whatever the case may be. Um, and if that guy sees your video and thinks that you might have done something wrong, he could call the FAA and then the FAA is going to investigate you. And everything might be fine. But the truth is, even for flights that are completely compliant with all the regulations, nobody enjoys FAA scrutiny. 
nobody enjoys an investigation into their piloting or, or specific flight operation that they took. Um, you know, the, when you host a video, you, know, you might have a two-hour-long flight. You know nobody's going to watch it. You're going to edit it. Um, but you might edit out running a checklist that was really important at a critical moment. And, you know, without that context, it might look like you were careless or reckless. Um, so context matters. There's not enough context, uh, typically in these videos and, and it can be fairly easy for somebody to allege that you violated a regulation. Um, you know, and, and even if you didn't, like I said, FAA scrutiny is never fun. And I, I wonder if it's all worth it. Yeah, it's a good point. And it, it's very kind of touchy and especially with the future and people want to be more people want to be YouTube stars now than they want to be astronauts or something like that. So I'm guessing it's going to play a role more in the future as well. And the FAA is going to have to come up with some guidelines or kind of have some basic rules on that. But yeah, you have to question yourself. Is it worth it? If you have a full-time flying job, this is what you want to do for your career. You're not making much money off it. Is it worth your license? Is it worth whatever? Like, it's very interesting what you said. You might think everything's perfect, but you might have one person that doesn't like you or doesn't like your videos or has some kind of grudge with you and they could report that. And then the FAA, like you said, you might have a perfect flight. You might not have done anything, but if the FAA is looking at something, I guarantee you every single flight, they can find something they don't like and they yeah. can figure out a way to either make you make you lose your license, not make you lose your license, but just bring you more scrutiny and more attention and have to do things that you don't want to do. So if you're going to do it, be very, very careful and just really understand the, the pros and the cons of it and understand every single video you post could be something that could get you in trouble and you have to realize, is this worth it? You just have to ask yourself that question every time. Is it yeah, worth it? Is it worth my a, job? Yes? A, no? You answer that. Yeah, it's a good question to ask yourself and it's also a good opportunity to double check and just make sure your house is in order because even if you post a full video of a perfect flight and there's simply nothing to critique, if somebody files a complaint or you're otherwise investigated by the FAA, they might turn up something else where you were non-compliant. Like, you know, maybe you had flown the previous month uh, and your medical had expired. Um, even if you've already gotten it renewed, you know, there, it's fairly easy with, uh, you know, ADSB and all of that for FAA inspectors to figure out where your airplane was, if not where you were. Um, and, you know, even if there was non-compliance that's been fixed by the time they're looking at you, uh, it's still going to be an uncomfortable conversation, even if there's not a bad outcome. Yeah. Agreed. Definitely agree. It's a very touchy situation. I think there will be more guidance on in the future because I think it is going to be more and more and the FAA is going to realize that they can't just say, no, don't do it. More people are still going to do it. And I'm sure there is a safe way to do it and advocate for it and make sure that we don't all get in trouble for posting videos. But I think that's in the works now as well. And we'll see what comes out in the future. We will see. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I wanted to do a scenario, but I feel like the more I'm thinking about it, if we have kind of touched on the scenario. We've touched on the the different types of memberships. What happens if you don't have the membership at the time, the free 30-minute consultant. We kind of talked about that. Um, I guess one of my last questions is outside of this. So say someone gets in trouble. Uh, pilot deviation, they don't have anything with AOPA. Is there any other resources, other other ways that you, or what do you recommend someone doesn't have PPS, that doesn't have a legal services plan in that 30-minute call? Is it just like, go go find a local lawyer, go do this, this is what the FAA is going to be looking for, make sure you do that. Is there any like kind of like little guidance that you, you typically give someone that doesn't have any of these services whatsoever? Sure. I mean, to be frank, the advice is really not 
that different. It might not be any different at all between somebody who is covered uh, and somebody who might sign up after the fact or, or just have questions, for example. Um, the only real difference is if you have the right level of pilot protection services and there's a covered event, we're going to write a check to the local attorney um, for you know up to whatever the plan limit is for that benefit. Um, but I don't think that's going to change the advice. Excuse me. The, the advice is always, you know, if something has happened like an accident, you know, if somebody's hurt, you got to call 911 before you even think about the FAA uh, or the NTSB. Um, but once you get into the aviation specific stuff, um, you know, we talk about NASA reports. Um, those are still a big component of, uh, of safety in the national airspace system and, uh, and, you know, protecting yourself as a pilot. Um, if there was any, Non-compliance that might not have been related to the specific flight operation, like we discussed, like, hey, you know, maybe your annual inspection on your aircraft had expired, um, something like that. Especially now, a lot of mechanics have been closed with the COVID-19 crisis. Um, you know, if you failed to get a ferry permit, you know, well, you go you fix those things, right? Get, get everything up to date. Um, before, hopefully before you hear from the FAA, um, you know, under the pilot's bill of rights, whenever you're investigated by the FAA, you're entitled to things like, uh, air traffic data, you know, radar recorded conversations with ATC. Um, you can always ask for that to get a better understanding of, um, you know, of what actually happened before you respond. So you can respond more appropriately. Um, and, you know, just like I said, in general, just make sure that your house is in order, flight review, medical qualification and, and everything else. Cause you know, it's not going to get you off the hook for flying with something expired or, or otherwise not correct, but it's certainly a lot better to have it resolved before you hear from the FAA than for them to discover that it's still out of compliance when they reach out to you. Absolutely. I agree. And I want to touch, the last thing I'll kind of brief up on is when I was going through my training, it was never really brought to me what a NASA report is. Can you give a brief rundown of what a NASA report is, what it provides a pilot, and kind of just the reason for it? Sure. So the, the reason for it is very simple. It, it's to um, to help safety in the national airspace system. Um, and and you know, a lot of pilots even the ones who've heard of NASA, and you're right, not enough people know about it. Even some of the pilots who've heard of NASA think that it's only to be used as a so-called get-out-of-jail-free card. But that, that's not the case. You, you know, anybody uh, can file a report, a pilot, a controller, or anybody about any potential safety issue. Um, it's anonymous. Nothing can be uh, used against the, the person who's filing it um, with, with a few limited exceptions. You know, there, there are certain things that are outside the scope of NASA Aircraft accidents that actually meet the definition of an accident are outside the scope of NASA, and there's no waiver of sanction available. Um, and, you know, there are certain things like intentional violations or criminal activity where, you know, if you report those things, those are not kept confidential. Um, you know, if you report a criminal act with an aircraft, it's going to get forwarded onto the authorities. But for everything else under the sun, flying with an expired annual uh, flying with an expired medical, runway incursion, airspace incursion, for anything else, uh, or, or even any safety concern that doesn't involve a pilot deviation, you can file a NASA report if it's timely, which means within uh, 10 days. Um, and if the FAA were to pursue an enforcement action like a suspension, the pilot who filed that report is going to be entitled to a waiver of sanction. It's not the complete get-out-of-jail-free card that pilots might think it is because if the FAA was going to suspend your certificate for 30 days, they could still get it on your record that 
they took this enforcement action. Um, but a timely NASA report can protect the pilot from that sanction actually being imposed. In other words, it'll be on the record, but they never get suspended. They never have to stop flying. Um, that protection is still very important. As I mentioned, um, fewer cases go to enforcement. More cases now are resolved through compliance. But NASA reports, I, I think, are still very important both to protect pilots and to um, add information about safety in the national airspace system so that trends can be analyzed and improvements can be made. Yeah, for sure. And it's important for, for there to be some kind of reporting system like this where we can know where the airspace system is failing, where we're failing training, and where we're failing without kind of uh, getting someone in trouble. So this is a very important factor. And I agree. I don't think it, or what I said earlier is I didn't know about this in my training. I didn't know about someone eventually just said, hey, I, I did something wrong and I did not necessarily wrong, but I submitted a NASA report. And I was like, a NASA report? What is that? So I think just having someone explain that and you can understand what that is early on in your career and just kind of understand the reason for it. It's like you said, it's not a jail to free card. You're not going to be able to do something really, really stupid and intentional and be like, well, I fill it on a NASA report. You can't touch me. That's not the purpose of it. But it is there for, for help and for learning and to, to help create a better airspace system and a better just overall um, general pilot situation, you know? Yep, absolutely. And I would do have some people who say NASA, the guys with the space shuttle. <laughs> um, the answer is yes. One of the one of the A's in that uh, in that acronym stands for aeronautics, um, and, and they basically function as an independent third party to the FAA because no one would want to fess up to possible noncompliance directly to FAA. People might not trust them to keep it uh, anonymous, but um, you know NASA has never breached confidentiality in over a million reports. It's a very good system, and yeah, as you pointed out. If the airspace has issues in a particular area, you know, if a, if a few pilots might have difficulty with an instrument approach or some other procedure somewhere, you know, that does get looked at and improvements get made. So it's a, it's a very important system. Um, we advise pilots to file them regularly. Again, it's not just about if you think you have a possible pilot deviation. It's anything, any safety concern that affects the national airspace system is, uh, is fair game for a NASA report. It's simply the... The waiver of sanction is offered basically as a, as a carrot to get more pilots to follow reports when they might otherwise be a little bit scared to disclose they might have done something wrong. Absolutely. And that, that's needed too. For pilots don't want the FAA to know anything about them that they don't already know. <laughs> you know? Yes, indeed. Uh, well, Chad, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I think we covered uh, AOPA, the legal services, pilot protection services, just everything that you do. And as I said in the beginning, this is a great series to kind of open up AOPA to show everyone that it's more than a, a membership card in a magazine. It is truly a company and organization that can help you and will fight for you and offers a lot of, uh, not necessarily protections, but offers a lot of services to help you in case something does come up and they are here for you. And like you said, they're, they're willing to talk and do a lot of great things. So I appreciate you explaining uh, a little bit more about the legal services and I really appreciate having you on. Thank you, Justin. It's been great talking with you and uh, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Aviation Nation, episode 124 with AOPA's Legal Service Department. Chad Mayer is now finished. Congratulations. Thank you for listening to the episode. I appreciate it. Uh, please share this with your friends. Share the podcast with your friends. Let everyone know that you're listening to Pilot to Pilot and they should as well. Uh, follow us on Instagram at Pilot to Pilot, Twitter, Pilot to Pilot, Facebook. You know the drill. Our website, Pilot to Pilot HQ.com. Leave us a review if you'd like the episode. And also, if you would like to possibly 
join the pilot the pilot squad and contribute with writing or content let me know i've got some emails already we're sifting through those i haven't forgotten about any of you also send me emails uh if possible maybe write a, a mock-up article just so we can read it and we can have people look at it and we can take uh, and figure out who's serious and who's not so check that out uh thank you kevin for editing all these episodes kevin is getting ready to go to flight safety for his first type rating so shout out to kevin kevin's a man he has been editing these podcast episodes and saving me so much time and letting me record all these episodes as well so kevin you're the man good luck with flight safety when that comes up aviation hope you guys are all having a great day and as always happy flying